Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, here we are. Uh, we've got another dangerous day of uh, international law, politics and journalism to get ahead with. Uh, so let's get right to it. Uh, Rishi Sunak is going to get up in the House of Commons at some point, possibly during this show, to talk about his new migrant law. Uh, he's going to say that uh, people coming here illegally uh, will be stopped from staying here and will be sent back for whence they came. Trouble is, nobody's quite sure if that's going to work, nobody's quite sure if that's legal, and nobody's quite sure how long it's actually going to take. So the question I've got is, what's the difference? Is it going to be any different tomorrow than it was yesterday? Is this shop window politics? Is it shop window government? Is this government actually practising, telling us what they're doing, showing us what they're doing, but not actually doing it? Is that what we're seeing from these WhatsApp messages? Because looking at what Matt Hancock was saying to an awful lot of ministers during the COVID lockdown and what a lot of the special advisors were saying to him during the COVID lockdown, it seems to me that the most important thing in government right now is to look as if you're doing something important, to look as if you're doing something helpful, to look as if you're doing something good. Because now it doesn't look like they did any of that. It now looks like they did an awful lot of things just to look like they were doing a lot of things. We're going to talk this morning to Leon Emirali, who's a former Downing Street advisor himself. He's going to give us an insight into what it was actually like inside number 10 and what it is that government has now become. Because let's face it, if you look at the Windsor experiment, the Windsor Accord, the Windsor framework, the Windsor clockwork, whatever you want to call it, does it actually change anything about the Brexit deal with Northern Ireland? Does it actually change anything with the Brexit deal with the European Union? I would say perhaps not. And this same business with the migrant crisis, is this new law that's going to be come brought in today into the House of Commons going to make any damn difference? I don't think it is. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're going to talk about all of that. Uh, we're also going to talk to Howard Cox about fuel duty. He's got a big piece in the sun today, urging Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, not to put fuel duty up uh, in the budget. We're also going to be talking to Norman Brennan about the many failings of the police forces of this country, uh, to wit uh, all sorts of terrible events like Wayne Cousins' murder of Sarah Everard. We're going to ask him why it is that the police are so incapable, it seems, of finding where the bad people are. And I'm talking about just inside the police force, never mind outside of it. Also, I'll be asking why the BBC is trying to kill off David Attenborough. 
I'm not joking. 0344 499 1000. That is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. That's the number. This is Talk TV. Let's get on with it. Welcome to Talk TV. If you've never been here before, this is going to be like something you've never done before, nothing, something you've never seen before. Uh, Leon Emerali is somebody that I met, what, a few months back uh, over in our other studio, uh, and we've been having you on Plank of the Week. We've been seeking your guidance on many things. This is a good day to talk to you, Leon, because a week has gone past practically since the first of the revelations in the Daily Telegraph about, um, about what's been going on in WhatsApp groups during uh, during the time that Matt Hancock was in charge of the, mm. the, the Department of Health. And I, it struck me that, you know, what comes out of all of these messages is that basically the government wants to look like they're doing the right thing. They're not necessarily that bothered about actually doing it. Yeah, and I think that it's blown a lid really on what the public see their politicians as, as, as being valuable for, mm. because it isn't in the action. It is very much in the optics, the image and the PR effectively, yeah. rather than actually the delivery. And I mm. think if you're not uh, used to what goes on in Westminster and Whitehall and you're looking at the, the text messages sent between Matt Hancock and his, and his advisors, you'd be surprised at just how much of the nitty gritty communications mm. detail Matt Hancock as Secretary of State is interested in right. where to put your commas, where to put your right. your, your, your punctuation. You know, right. why should whether somebody else should be that? put out as the spokesperson in case they get the credit for it, that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's all about how can how can they sort of fluff their own collars and make themselves look look better. Unfortunately, yeah. and I think that's partially down to what happened under Tony Blair. That's mm. when it seemed to all begin. Is when government became more obsessed about image rather yeah. than actual actual action. And also bringing more people into the business of being sort of allegedly civil servants. Alistair Campbell, I guess, being the first one mm. who was kind of politically appointed but technically speaking, was working, you know, not for the Labour Party, but for the government. Yeah, you start to see this this crossover where, you know, the appointment of, of special advisors, spin doctors, policy advisors, you know, a whole plethora of individuals around any 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 minister at any given time, and they all do have blurred lines. Mm. Because are you, are you working for the government and therefore the people who elected them, or are you working for the person who, who you're accountable to yes. every day, your minister? And that's a very good uh, distinction to make. So what's the answer to that? Well, it, it is difficult, and... And David Cameron once um, put all the special advisors in a room and said, look, uh, who do you all work for? And everyone went round and said, I work for this minister, that minister, Mm. this minister. And David Cameron said, no, you work for me as the prime minister. And I think that's a good point, is that you are there for the government as a whole, not just for your own individual minister. And we see in the text messages with uh, Hancock and his advisors that it's all about how can they position him mm. for either a promotion or yeah. to make his reputation enhanced. Right. You know, It's not necessarily about what's good for the country. I don't think mm. that's a good thing. No, it can't be a good thing. And I wonder whether any of this will change as a result of this publication, because the WhatsApp messages, as many people keep saying, are a small part of what it is that will come out perhaps in the inquiry. But I'm not sure that's even true, because I was listening to somebody talking this morning and even the inquiry is going to struggle to take all of this kind of yeah. bulk uh, of words. If they were to take, for example, every WhatsApp group inside Downing Street, mm. I mean, it'd probably mm. be 20 times what this one is. Well, it's just government by WhatsApp has mm. been that way for a number of years now. And, and I do think that there are a load of messages in there that for a lot of people, I think the revelations aren't necessarily that new. No. But it's more about the way in which it's those exactly. decisions were made. Exactly. And I think that's where the public are slightly shocked, actually, mm. that, you know, Matt Hancock gives a thumbs-up emoji and that means that a new policy yeah. is in place. That I mean, it confirms, I suspect it confirms the suspicions that people like, like us had here at Talk TV uh, of how this was being done kind of not for the scientific reason that they were telling us it was being done, but mm. very much on a whim, yeah. very much on a kind of you know PR front, 
basis, uh, or as famously was was revealed yesterday, to scare the pants off us. Yeah, and I've got a bit of sympathy for the government because look, you know, no one is expecting a pandemic. No one really knew no. how to deal with it, so everyone was making things up on the hoof and doing their best at, at right. that given time. But when we look back in retrospect, there were some glaring errors and glaring mistakes mm. that they made. And as you say, you know, using language like scaring the pants off the public, yeah. I mean, it just doesn't leave. But a good also, taste let's in the not mouth. forget that the people who were asking the questions and asking the right questions were being vilified as well by this government who were being uh, they were being told that they were you know crazy that mm. they were conspiracy theorists that they were you know covid deniers yeah. all sorts of terrible statements being made and thrown at you um, and it turns out not only should we have asked those questions but we were actually turned out to be right yeah i mean we've seen it with the, the origins of the of the virus itself now you know it seems to be accepted that it came from a lab leak and at mm. the time that was a, a wild conspiracy theory that you couldn't say and i right. think that what COVID did was created a, an environment where you, if you had an opposing view, you simply couldn't, yeah. couldn't, couldn't air it. Mm. And I think that's not healthy for a democracy. We should challenge it, have the debate, have the discussion, and ultimately yeah. make your own mind up as to what's wrong and what's right. Right. And a lot of people asked the question, I brought this up yesterday about Dominic Cummings. When Dominic Cummings left and, you know, started doing these relentlessly long and sometimes quite tedious threads on Twitter that yeah. just went on and on for about 50 different tweets... You know, how is he not in breach of something? You know, if, if Matt Hancock says this is a breach of trust and it's somehow not in the public interest, how is what Dominic Cummings did not the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> clearly, clearly there is a lot that Well, I'm Dominic glad you Cummings... don't know because I couldn't figure it out. Either. I'm going, well, hang on, how is he able to say all this? Yeah. One, a lot of it seems to be something that you might expect to be covered by the Official Secrets Act. Yeah. He's talking about what happened inside Downing Street, yeah. in cabinet meetings, you know, in secret meetings, in bunkers, in all sorts of places. And he's just writing about it. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are structures in place that, that, that stop people who have been privy to information like that, that, that they don't just simply go out there and start selling the state secrets mm. and revealing things that could leave us vulnerable, you know, either from a military point yeah. of view or another point of view. So th they are governed by this, but it's incredibly loose. And mm. as you say, you know, for, for uh, Dominic Cummings to be just firing off tweets on a whim, yeah. clearly, you know, he's not he's not abiding right. to those to those rules if, if they if they cover that. Same with Matt Hancock's text messages. I think we are at a point of greater transparency, mm. which actually I would argue is a good thing. Yes. I'd argue it's a good thing that we are hearing from those people that were at the heart of, of, of decision-making. And we I also them. think that the public, generally speaking, does not have faith in the, the inquiry um, sort of, you know, um, necessity, because the inquiry will, will event, no matter what the head of the inquiry says, will take too long, yeah. will not go to places where it yeah. should go, and will miss a load of stuff out. Yeah, we don't do inquiries well in this country. No. I mean, we saw it with, with, with Chilcot and, and, and what went on around Iraq. We take too long, and we often probe the wrong questions, and I think that actually putting the information out there in the public, allowing the public to make their own minds up, and then going to the ballot box right. and deciding whether or not this government is right for them based on their track mm. record. And I think that's probably a more democratic way of doing things. But as you say, the inquiry feels like at the moment it's just going to be a waste of time. Yeah. And there's going to be nothing coming of it's it. It's just that, people that sitting in a room talking about things and not really getting anywhere. It just seems to be completely pointless. But you were there at the beginning of all of this when, when, when COVID sort of came to, to this country. And, and I mean, I remember it reasonably well. I mean, what was it like in Downing Street at that point? Was it a kind of place where people were absolutely pale with fear because they didn't know what was coming. I mean, what was it? Were they paralysed? What were they doing? Yeah, I mean, I saw it more from the Treasury side and in and in Parliament. And I think that there was just a sense of, you know, to be to be frank, slightly 
um, headless chickens yeah. because because no one really knew there wasn't a blueprint for this and no. you're looking at what was going on around the rest of the world and you might remember you know Spain Italy yeah. we were following the trajectory yeah. of countries that had already had it and trying right. to map what were they yeah I mean I remember seeing footage of these um, lorries driving and in, in sort of in the, in the dark cover of night in, yeah. in Italy yeah. with, with body bags being loaded into them thinking crikey yeah and hospitals full of body bags well I remember looking at some of the the BBC news footage and you're watching it and you are terrified yeah. because you're looking at it and thinking blimey this is going to impact everyone it's right. going to kill a lot of people right and i think that only and you have to say the bbc were probably party to you having that impression in the way that they did it well i think they were i think i think they, they were and it was you know sensationalism i think to, to a degree because it was a mm. pandemic it sounds big and scary it was unprecedented yeah and they didn't really know how to cover it you know how much do they scare the public mm. into into submission effectively yeah. to, to the rules and how much do they present a balanced view but i remember you know some of those that footage as you say body bags and and, and hospital beds mm. and all the rest of it it was, mm. it was very very grim it was dark as hell wasn't yeah it? and you think that's coming to british shores within mm. a matter of weeks we were yeah. told at the time it was almost like a countdown well, one of my surprise revelations was that almost everybody uh, who's in school goes to northern italy skiing at least at least you know just before uh, for the half term of, mm. uh, of the spring of the, of the spring term yeah you know because everybody seemed to have gone there yeah 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 and there was there was a number of events like that cheltenham happened uh you yes know, right on the on the cusp of of, of the lockdowns and there was a bunch of you know many people there hundreds of thousand people mixing mixing mm. there so there was a lot of stuff that went on that when you look back you think was was ill judged um, but we can have 2020 hindsight and and as much as as much fun as it is to bash the politicians although you think, say that but actually if they hadn't if they cancelled Cheltenham and thereby cancelled another huge chunk of the economy you know would it have been any worse than it was probably not probably not no you know, well, exactly because that's the other bit we now know that if they hadn't shut down the schools probably wouldn't have made any difference yeah yeah and if I, we hadn't been forced to wear masks probably wouldn't have made any difference and that was the big issue was weighing the economic mm. Uh, you know, a problem that you'd essentially have by locking down or shutting down the economy, large chunks of the economy. Right. How do you weigh that with the public health um, argument of it? And I think that's where the tension between mm. Hancock and Sunak start to play out in these text messages. Yeah. And you do see that argument. And to Rishi Sunak's credit, you know, I think he was he was right to be sceptical of, of just endless... Well, funny enough, two of the people that come out of all of these WhatsApp messages, not bad, in my view, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. Agree, agree Actually. with you. Yeah, agree with you. I think I think Boris Johnson was quite thoughtful in yeah. the questions he was asking. Yeah. He was mindful of what does this do to people's mental health? What does this do to the broader economy? Uh, and yes, Sunak for actually saying there isn't a blank check for you just to mm. to, to you know spend as much taxpayer right. money as you want on this, and there has to be limits. And right. I think those two do come across quite well, and that's probably why they became prime minister. Yeah. And Matt Hancock's in the jungle eating kangaroo testicles. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's not even going back there at this point. Uh, but still, we are. We're talking to Leon. Morali, former government special advisor. Uh, we've got plenty else to talk about. We want your calls, of course, as well. Don't forget 0344 499 1000. We'll be going live down to the south coast in a little while as well. Uh, we've got a talk TV reporter uh, down in Dover uh, checking out what's going on down there today on the day uh, that Rishi Sunak introduces new legislation to stop the small boats from coming full of illegal migrants. Let's talk TV. Essential, edgy, engaging. Advanced postulation for any angry nation. Ask for it by name. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, Jonathan Gullis, MP, Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, is going to be joining us. He's got something to say uh, about Rishi Sunak's new migrant laws that are going to be brought in sometime today. Could be before midday, could be just after midday. We're not entirely sure. Uh, we're talking to Leon Emirali, um, a former advisor, of course, to this government. And uh, when you were in uh, the, the soup, if you, if you might call it that, is it an all-encompassing kind of 24-7 type job? Are you expected to be on call pretty much day and night because what the other question I was going to ask you was that if you were working I don't know if in, in the Treasury say at the time there would have been all sorts of projects which were halfway through or just about to start presumably when all of this happened. Yeah I mean it was the government was on pause wasn't right. it and I, I remember being uh, in Westminster w- with my MP and uh, we were we were you know effectively told that the government is shutting down right. and, and, and everyone had to work from home and that included ministers. Right. And there was a bit of a mad scramble at the time I remember that um, ministers would, would, wouldn't be in studios having conversations. Right. You know, they'd be jetting in via uh, zooming in. Yeah. On, on, uh, on well, that was a, that was the thing for all of us, where you know suddenly Zoom was a thing. You yeah. Know, Skype was something that we'd all used fitfully, very now and every now and again, but yeah. not much. And there, well, there was a big panic because yeah. you know a lot of these MPs had never used this before, right. and uh, you know they're asking for cameras and, mm. and, and lights and all the rest of it, so that it looks it looks proper. And, right. Because this just wasn't something MPs thought of before and no. you realise actually they do rely quite a lot on their aides for this type mm. of thing and, and when they're on their own at home it was quite a frustrating yeah. process because you're trying to communicate with your with your MP via uh, text message obviously via you know WhatsApp as Matt, obviously with Matt Hancock but right. it was quite a frustrating time um, and then yeah government just effectively stopped it it was, mm. all, it was all into into what was going on with the pandemic ventilators you might remember I, mean, I remember that know, was a big thing wasn't it that everybody needed a ventilator you must get more ventilators I think was it Dyson who D- said Dyson, that he was going to make um, provision for some like half a million ventilators. There were plenty of businesses saying, oh, right. you know, we'll, we'll completely change our business model and right. go, go into ventilators because we thought that was um, a critical tool. What, it turns out yeah. that wasn't. And that's why, them. I mean, people talk about the practice run that was done a couple of years earlier. So I remember getting an MP on who said, you know, we could have man, we could have had all these ventilators ready, yeah. and it's like, well, yeah, but now it turns out we didn't need them. So whatever the the, the dry run was, yeah. which provided that information, which suggested ventilators what was required, yeah. was a pointless activity because none of the conclusions that were drawn actually were, were, were ones that were, were correct. Yeah, and also the Nightingale Hospital, yeah. these extra surge capacity hospitals that mm. weren't used. Yeah, so you sort of think, okay, well, well, we didn't need those either. And then you know Matt Hancock on the on the phone to the French mm. saying, why don't you ship in your COVID yeah. patients? because we've got spare capacity. I mean, that's a bizarre thing to, to want to do. So yeah. there were all sorts of just strange thinking going on at Westminster mm. in the time because it was unprecedented. And also, Mike, there wasn't much scrutiny. Um, Labour had effectively said, all right, government, you go and deal yes. with this. We're on a sort of war footing, as right. it were. So they weren't getting much scrutiny. The media weren't giving them much scrutiny no. either because, you know, ultimately everyone wanted the country to, to pull through. Mm. Um, and I think that led to some strange decisions being made and the likes of, you know, Matt Hancock and others doing things that they wouldn't ordinarily do if they'd been properly scrutinised. Well, I think that was the problem. that You could see from the beginning that, you know, it went from being perhaps a shocking situation to then them trying to get on top of it to then them realising that if they wanted to properly control everything, mm. they had to actually control the people. Yeah. And they had to control the people's behaviour. And that was when it all went wrong, I think. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we saw it now with the, the party gate and all the rest of it. The, the public, if it happened now, if there was a lockdown now, I just don't think the public would no. abide to it because we've seen that, number one, you know, does it actually have that much of an impact on con- curtailing the yeah. virus? And number two, those who make the rules weren't following yeah. them anyway. Well, so- James Hill was on this morning with Julie Hartley Brewer saying, actually, there are still people going through the court system now Mm. who were fined for supposed breaches of the COVID regulations. I mean, surely 
with any brains, this yeah. government should just get rid of all of that, yeah, shouldn't just, it? And just I, say, look, if you've had a fine, just forget about it, rip it up, throw it in the bin, you don't have to get a call. I think we've got to, if it's clogging up the justice system as well, there, there are better ways to spend our resources yeah. in, in, in justice than, than on people who, you know, maybe had an extra person around, mm. but there's meant to be only six of you. Oh, I mean, remember the foot- I remember the footage of police knocking on the, the door of some students in Newcastle asking for them all to come out because there might be more than six of them in there. Mm. And you're going, come on, guys, mm. for heaven's sake. Um, talking of Partygate, let's talk a bit about Sue Gray, yeah. because that's also a woolly area, isn't it? Of, of kind of, uh, of, of and, we've, and we've got Simon Case as well under, under scrutiny yes. now. Both senior civil servants, both supposedly um, uh, meant to be at least neutral while they're doing their jobs. Yeah. But that's now being called into question. Yeah, and I can't get my head round um, Keir Starmer wanting to appoint Sue Gray. Cause no. I didn't work with her personally, but I know a lot of people who did, and they rate her. She's very good at her job. I'm mm. sure that's the case. But there are lots of people who are very good at their job. Yeah. And I think by appointing one of the most high-profile civil servants because of the Partygate mm. report, you know, Sue Gray's name was in the paper every day for yeah. the period, um, by appointing her, it just gives the Conservatives an opportunity to say, well, look, we told you the civil service is stuffed with lefties who don't like our agenda and are mm. going to try and block us. And that just feeds that yeah. narrative. I well, think Dan Hodges wrote exactly that piece on Sunday, saying in the Mail on Sunday, you know, this has absolutely kiboshed Keir Starmer's ambitions to prove himself to be one to be a man of principle. Yeah. Uh, but also, too, he's given Boris Johnson a kind of a, an escape route yeah. out of the, the Privileges Committee hearings that he's going to be doing, I think, either later this week or next week. Yeah, I mean, he, he was giving an interview uh, to, to to another radio station and, and uh, it was a, it was an awful interview. It was yeah, awkward. I saw. He was squirming, uh, wasn't able to answer, you know, when he first approached right. her. And I think it just makes him look a bit shifty. He right. kept saying there was no wrongdoing. It was, it was nothing improper. Well, as soon as well, he started right saying well, that, but that's not how it works, Keir. You know, you don't just say that and then it all goes away. Exactly, exactly that. And I just think it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look right to no. sit right with the public that you've got one of the most senior civil servants in the country who should be impartial now taking on a, mm. a you know, highly political role as chief of staff to, to, yeah. the, to the opposition. It just doesn't sit right. It really doesn't. And of course, Labour have, have given out the. The, the sort of the, the guidance to all their various shadow ministers because Wes Streeting was on with Julia yesterday and he was asked, "What do you know when they started talking?" Oh no, I, I, I mm. don't know the answer to that. Mm. Why doesn't Keir Starmer tell everybody when he started talking to her? Mm. Well, he doesn't want to prejudice the inquiry. To which I said, "Well, hang on a minute. How are you prejudicing an inquiry by telling the truth?" Exactly. You know, exactly. If, if, if unless you're spinning a yarn, yeah, yeah, why yeah. wouldn't you want everybody to know when you started talking? If it's going to come out anyway, well, yeah. why don't why don't you? Is, just it, say? is it possibly because you might disagree with Sue Gray as to when you started talking? Well, I, or she might say something else. I mean, who knows? It could be any of those mm. things, couldn't it? And I just think that there's a, that's part of the reason why this feels so murky. Yeah. Because we haven't got all of the details about it. And I think we should have the details right. because she is a public servant. She's not a party. And so for person. a man who was getting a reputation for sort of sitting back and, you know, mm. never stopped the opposition from screwing yeah. it all up. Yeah. He's now done it himself. I think he has. I think he has made a mistake there. Yeah. I just don't see the benefit. I think that the, the risk outweighs the, the potential benefit here. And I think that he's seen that backfire, makes him look shady makes him look murky mm. and that's not what you want when you're you know riding high in the polls no. as he is and I think this is, is potentially going to be a setback for Labour. Exactly right. Finally Sir Stanley Johnson. Yes. Are you in favour? Look um, the honours system Mike has got a lot of flaws. It's got uh, loads of flaws. And there are there are many people who have got an honour that are less deserving of it than than Stanley Johnson, who, you know, let's not forget, in his own right, mm. has done a lot for, you know, environmental campaigning. Yeah. He was an MEP for a number of years yeah. and, and, and I think, you know, is is deserving of an honour a lot more than, than some others are. 
the problem is that his son is the one who's, yeah. who's giving it to him, and it just yeah, again, it's sort of nepotism that we don't really do in this country. Mm. Uh, and I, I, again, it's something that doesn't quite sit right. But it then doesn't. Again, but you see, I also take the view that in the end, you can't help who your father is or who your son is. If you happen to be prime minister and your father happens to have been somebody who is deserving of an honour, why should you not be able to grant that? Yeah, and you look at Boris why should Johnson's, he be treated differently? In other words, exactly. And you look at Boris Johnson's career throughout. This isn't going to be the one thing that's the nail in his coffin. No. I mean, he gets away with this type of well, thing. Well, nobody complains when he nominated his brother for the House of Lords. No, and, and, and there's a precedent. Theresa May nominated her husband yeah. for a knighthood. Right. Uh, and I think John Major did the same with, with Norma. Right. Uh, uh, so you know, there is a precedent for um, politicians you know, bestowing these, these honours on, mm. on, on close family members, whether it's right or wrong. You know, it, it's up to it's the It's the Trump effect, isn't it? It's if you hate the figure... You hate everything that he says and does and proposes, yeah. and it's all wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and the Wuhan lab leak. Yeah, and I think we have to listen to those. You know, just because it's coming from someone that you disagree with fundamentally, yeah. it doesn't mean everything right. they do is is wrong or, or or not right. You know, people can be wrong and right at the yeah, same exactly. time. Yeah, exactly. It is extraordinary. Leon, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Leon Morali, there, uh, former advisor to the government, uh, with a pretty interesting insight into how it all works. But I'm asking you that question: Is it shop window government, shop window politics? When you go in the shop, there's not much there. Or maybe it's shut for lunch. You never know. Coming up, we're going to talk to Jonathan Gullis, MP, about the migrants and the new laws that are coming in to stop them coming. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, with you all the way through until one o'clock. Of course, it may well be between now and then uh, that we get some news from Downing Street or from the Houses of Parliament uh, that Rishi Sunak's new laws are going to be enacted uh, later on today. They're going to be introduced in the House of Commons. Uh, they will supposedly stop the migrant boats from coming. We're also down in Dover today uh, with one of our reporters, so we'll be bringing you all of that. Uh, the big question is, will it actually work? Let's talk to Jonathan Gullis, uh, Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, who's live with us now on College Green, just outside the Houses of Parliament. Jonathan, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike, and it's great to be on the Common Sense channel. Thank you very much indeed. It's good to see you. I'm glad the rain seems to have stopped for the moment, so hopefully you won't need an umbrella. Um, it's, an, it's a great day for those of us who've been campaigning for something that, to be done that could work. The trouble is everything so far hasn't worked. What makes you think or hope that this will? Well, look, first of all, I want to give full credit to the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, who have been across the detail on this and regularly keeping myself and other colleagues who have been raising this for a long time up to date with progress. And I'm looking forward to seeing the detail today. But let's also be honest with the uh, listeners and the viewers, Mike. We are going to clearly see legal challenges from the lefty lawyers and the charity organisations mm. who have got their own self-interest in keeping this continuing. And essentially, we will have to go through the UK legal court system. But I firmly believe that, like we've already seen with the National and Borders Act, in particular the Rwanda scheme, the courts will find that what we're doing is well within the legal rights of our sovereign nation to take control of our laws and our borders. And we need to make sure in Parliament we are one united voice, at the very least on the Conservative benches, into delivering on that important uh, one of the five pledges the Prime Minister has already laid out. I mean, I was still listening to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning. She had a, a lawyer on, one of the more sensible lawyers, actually, on the immigration front, who said that one of the differences now is that we haven't been able to, to send back as many people as we used to be able to do back in the sort of 2008, 2009 years. I'm not quite sure why that is and, or whether you can shine any light on that. But it has been very frustrating for the government being stopped at every turn, having people even taken off um, planes. I mean, including that Jamaican uh, criminal who was rescued from uh, being deported by the Keir Starmer and a bunch of celebrities, uh, who then went on to kill somebody else. 
Well, I totally agree with you. And I think one of the key things that we need to make sure that we do do is get those returns agreements in place. And I'm delighted we have, obviously, the Rwanda scheme. We have the returns policy with Albania. But we do need to get agreement with our European neighbours in France as well in order to make sure that people who do come here illegally are deported back to that safe third country they came through or to where they originally came from. Because as you say, Mike, when a third of the people coming here illegally are from Albania, a NATO member, they have no need to come to this country, especially when you can spend 28 quid on a flight rather than four and a half thousand to get in a, a vessel across yeah. the English Channel and risk your life unnecessarily. So I think that that's a really important part of the process. We obviously also need to make sure we get rid of the hotels and detain people. And I'm pleased to hear plans to use some former RAF bases to turn them into mass detention centres rather than seeing the British taxpayer have to have hotels in their, in their mm. communities taken over and ruining the heartbeat of those communities and the tourism industry within them. Yes, because the sheer numbers of people who have come in the last two years, Jonathan, have sort of engulfed the system in such a way um, that it's been impossible to make any progress. It's a bit like paying off the interest on a credit card. It's 22.5%. You never actually get rid of the principal amount of money that you borrowed. And so there's going to have to be something radical done here, isn't there? I mean, are there any plans to, to sort of beef up the border force? I've heard people on the border force saying if they had more... Um, facilities to put people in if they had more resources and more people they could stop more of these boats well uh, with that particular question Mike I'm not trying to dodge it. you know me I'll say what I think and that's detail that I'm looking to forward, forward to seeing yeah. later on laid out today um, and, we, and I agree with you though that we need to make sure that we invest in bodies not only on our own borders but to make sure we've got more bodies over on the French border because mm. I think it's fair to say that British public's confidence in the ability of the French border patrol and police to prevent these boats from launching is at an all time low and despite we're getting told by the Home Office that 50% of boats have been prevented from even launching in France we don't see the evidence of that when you see numbers at 45,000 as we did uh, last year and we've already seen 3,000 this year it's so important that we take back control of our laws and our borders and today will also be a big day for Mr Flipflop leader of the Labour Party someone who backed Corbyn then dumped him after he lost the election wanted a second referendum dumped it after he lost the 2019 general election had 10 pledges to be leader of the Labour Party then dumped it once he got elected we'll see him again despite all the tough rhetoric in the Telegraph actually do what he, we know he does which is back his lefty lawyer mates back the socialists in the Labour Party be pro open borders and be pro uh, allowing the boats to continue coming over over. Yeah, well, I mean, the less said about old Keir Starmer, the better, I suppose, because here's uh, <laughs> uh, a, a guy who thinks it's a great political move uh, to hire the woman uh, who he said was filled with integrity uh, and who'd done such a great job investigating the Prime Minister, who happens to be a Conservative, because he wants to make her the Chief of Staff head of the Labour Party. An extraordinary decision. Well, it is extraordinary. What it's actually done is severely undermine the civil service, who actually, in my experience, when I worked in the Department for Education as the Minister for School Standards, were impartial, were fair, were good. We had good uh, debate and discussion internally about policies and agendas, but it was always done, in my belief, in an impartial way. And Sue Gray is someone who does have a fantastic reputation, but has sadly, in my opinion, tarnished that by making such an overt party political move and shows Keir Starmer, when he says about integrity, openness and honesty as part of his core values, why can't he just simply tell us, when did you start speaking to Sue Gray? Where did you start speaking to Sue Gray? Were any discussions, for example, on the parliamentary estate at any stage? Were they in private homes of Sue Gray or Sir Keir Starmer? And why have you chosen Sue Gray specifically? And when we see her son, as a well-known now Labour Party activist, actively campaigning against Boris Johnson and his own constituency, it just muddies the waters mm. and smells of a grubby deal. Well, it really does. And also, um, listening to um, um, 
Wes Streeting yesterday, who said that, well, Keir Starmer doesn't want to prejudice the inquiry by saying when he started talking to her. Uh, to which I thought, well, hang on a minute. Uh, since when is telling the truth prejudicing an inquiry? Well, absolutely. And also it raises the question, were any conversations had during the inquiry? That seems to me something that we need to search in there. And when I heard Labour MP standing up yesterday saying we're delighted we've secured Sue Gray's uh, uh, you know, appointment as the chief of staff to lead the opposition, I was thinking, well, they must, have a they must be able to see into the future because it's not gone through the ACABA process yet, nor has it got the approval, but they seem to already think it's locked in, yeah. which clearly shows that these conversations must have been going on for much longer than some of us even dared think to him originally. Yeah. And also, who knows what side issues or, or things that she knows that she might tell him that nobody knows that she's discovered. I mean, it's all, it's all grubby and horrible and it should all be stopped, is my view. But let, let's go back to the migrants just for a moment because some startling statistics have come our way, uh, which show that in 2018, which is only five years ago, um, it was only 299 people that came to this country illegally. 2020, it went up to 8,466. By 2022, last year, it's up to 45,800 practically. And the estimate now, because of what's already happened, is 80,000. I mean, so, so even without adding in numbers that we don't know about, you know, you could be looking at um, a couple of hundred thousand people over the course of the last four years. Well, look, Mike, I share the anger of the great British public and, in fact, the constituency I'm proud to serve, which is the people of Stoke-on-Trent, North Kidsgrave and Talk, which of which Stoke-on-Trent was the fifth largest contributor to the asylum dispersal scheme and 850 people pre any hotels being used, which we now do in our great city. So over a thousand illegal migrants currently being housed. I understand why people are angry. I understand why people will be sceptical of the rhetoric today, which is why I've made it very clear to the Prime Minister that we must deliver and this legislation can't be all talk and no trouser. Because if it is, then the Conservative Party is going to get a shellacking at mm. the next general election and not one that I want because it will just lead to a Labour Party who will reverse these policies and we'll only see numbers continue. But of course, they'll say and claim that everyone is uh, an asylum seeker fleeing harm and not actually admit the fact that they're from countries like Albania uh, where obviously there is no need to come over. Yeah. So I totally understand the anger, totally understand the need to deliver on this policy and I will be holding the government's feet to the fire on this very issue. I know you will Jonathan and also a lot of people have been in touch with me um, who saw on this channel just uh, a month or so ago Serco advertising for landlords to give homes uh, to migrants, presumably ones who are being moved out of hotels, offering five-year leases, all expenses paid, all bills paid. You know this is a massive business which is going on here and that has to be stopped surely as well. That was in Stoke as far as I know. Well, I, I uh, launched a petition called End Circus Abuse of Stoke-on-Trent and I had a 2,000 signatures in just over uh, two weeks yeah. and submitted that to the House of Commons. And you are right, Serco is clearly just trying to profiteer off a situation without care or regard for the communities that are being affected by this, especially when in places like Stoke, for every one resident in a Truro and Hanley ward, uh, sorry, for every one asylum seeker, there's 30 residents. So mm. one in 30 ratio is utterly appalling and unacceptable and changes the mood and the feel of of a local area as well as undermines the hospitality sector and the tourism sector that in Stoke-on-Trent we're proud to be investing and trying to grow. So I think that absolutely Serco need to be held uh, to account for trying to basically take uh, make long-term money and those trying to profiteer off this like Britannia Hotel Chain one of those who are using hotels in Stoke-on-Trent uh, to uh, out, uh, out to Serco uh, need to be told as well that you're already well known for being one of the mm. most appalling hotel chains in the country. Don't try and fill these hotels up to make a quick buck at the expense of local people. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, it's gratifying in a way, though, isn't it, Jonathan? You've been fighting for this cause for a long time, as have we here at Talk TV, that finally, and I think Rishi Sunak actually managed to get this done 
by calling it an unfair system and a dangerous system because I think that language has somehow filtered through. And finally, other media outlets, other MPs, and even, dare I say it, some opposition MPs are finally realising that this influx of people has got to stop. Look, Mike, it is the humane thing to do to want people to not risk their lives unnecessarily from safe mainland France and crossing dangerous waters. It is the humane thing to do to help people rebuild their lives in places like Rwanda, which are perfectly safe uh, as well. It is the humane thing to do to make sure that we protect our borders for the security of our nation. And I think it's sad that it's taken so long for people to really wake up and smell the coffee. Thankfully, listeners and viewers to Talk TV like, and presenters like yourself, Mike, have been banging on about this for a long time. And I'm glad to have been banging on about this since 2019 after getting elected. Uh, but, you know, I think Rishi Sunak does deserve praise. I like the uh, news that we're hearing about this Strasbourg break, which is essentially reminding the courts that UK Parliament is sovereign and that UK law should take precedent over political interpretations of the ECHR. But I will say this, I do think the Prime Minister can go one step further. He should put in there we're going to derogate from the ECHR. And before the lefty lawyers scream their heads off in anger, France has doubled the derogation rate of that of the United Kingdom. And we're not saying to leave the ECHR here, we're saying to derogate in this issue because we as a sovereign nation and as a sovereign parliament have a right to take back control of our laws and our borders. Indeed. One final question for you, Jonathan. Um, any WhatsApp groups you're in you want to tell us about? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm waiting to see uh, what Matt and I exchanged in text messages because I changed my phone. Uh, so I've lost all my previous messages. So I hope maybe Matt Hancock will be able to shed light on what boring <laughs> conversations we have with each other. But I mean, what a disgrace yeah. uh, to see the attitude in which he displayed. James Daly is one of the finest parliamentarians I've seen in the House since mm. being elected in 2019. Successfully campaigned for Gig Lane to get the funding it needs so that fantastic football stadium remains at a heartbeat to the community. And to see the callous disregard for what he has worked so hard for his community on with the disability hub and to be used as a weapon is appalling. I've never in my time as being a parliamentarian had any such threats, neither has James clearly based on what he has said, but the fact that those type of conversations gone behind the scenes is wrong. Parliamentarians work damn hard, they get community support, they make the business cases and I hope Matt Hancock does the right thing and apologises to James for even considering that as an option. He doesn't deserve it and I'm very sorry because I'm sure he's having a terribly tough day today yeah. with this being on the front page of the Telegraph. Absolutely. Jonathan, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for sparing the time. Jonathan Gullis, Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, a man who has been very much uh, at the forefront of the backbench Conservative Party uh, groups and also uh, very much on the front benches too, talking about this issue, talking about the migrant crisis, talking about how something has to be done and not doing what the Labour Party for so long have done, which is to ignore it uh, and to pretend that it's all fine and dandy and that we want to have more people coming to this country because we welcome everybody. Well, we don't and we can't because it's full. It's as simple as that. Time to do something about it. Rishi Sunak says he's going to. We'll find out later today what that actually is. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're going to be shortly going to Peter Cardwell, who's down on College Green, who's going to give us the update on what is happening with Rishi Sunak and his new migrant laws. And also we'll be down uh, in Dover with Oliver Whitfield Miocic as well, uh, who's going to be reporting in to us from there. But before we go to both of them, let me just ask you a question. Why is the BBC trying to kill David Attenborough? Why is the BBC trying to work this man uh, into uh, the end of his career? You know, he's 96 years of age. David Amber. He's had a brilliant career. Whatever you may think uh, of some of his political views, whatever you may think uh, of some of the things that he has said, he is, without any shadow of a doubt, one of the great Britons that we have loved for many generations. 
everybody loves David Attenborough's programmes, right? Everybody likes to see him wandering around the world, looking at marvellous things. The photography's famously award-winning. But the BBC, right, has taken David Attenborough, 96 years of age, over a three-year period, in and around some of the most remote parts of Great Britain, some of the coldest, wettest, nastiest parts of Britain. One particular place, Skomer Island, which is home to some rare puffins, apparently, and some Manx shearwater birds, right? They took him out there, even though they knew the birds had bird flu, even though they knew uh, that he's 96 years of age. They didn't need to take him there. He doesn't need to go anywhere. He doesn't need to work. What are they thinking? Also, they've outed Skomer Island as a place where hardly anybody ever goes. Now, everybody's going to go. You know what happens. David Attenborough makes a place famous. You're going to get people bobbing about on boats, terrorising the puffins, terrorising these um, sheer water chicks. It'll be a complete disaster. It's an absolutely ridiculous idea. What are they going to do next? Hey, David, how do you fancy going, I don't know, underground? How about a couple of weeks in Death Valley? How about, you know, let's take you on a round-the-world yacht. You're going to be 100 soon. Maybe we can think of doing a show around your 100th birthday and have you camping out in the Antarctic. You know, he's had a magnificent career. Leave him alone. For God's sake, save David Attenborough from the BBC. That's what I say. This is Talk TV. Um, let's go live now uh, to Peter Cardwell, first of all, who's uh, down in College Green for us. Peter. Uh, good morning, Mike. Well, we've just had it confirmed in the last few minutes that the, this uh, debate, the introduction of this legislation, is going to happen at 12.30. So in uh, just over an hour and a half's time, we'll see Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, uh, speak in the House of Commons and introduce this legislation, landmark piece of legislation, trying to solve one of the toughest problems in politics, certainly over the past three or four years, but for even for much longer than that, in terms of small boats arriving in on the south coast in Dover and other places. Now, this is a big political political uh, gamble for Rishi Sunak because there are lots of ways in which this can go wrong. If it goes right, well then he will please a lot of his base, he will please a lot of Conservative voters and a lot of other people as well who see the humanitarian crisis, who see the fairness crisis in this is how Rishi Sunak has characterised it, but also the fact that taxpayers are paying £7 million a day to keep asylum seekers, illegal migrants in uh, accommodation in hotels, sometimes four and five star hotels so the fairness argument is at the heart of this. Labour, well they're saying that they oppose this. There are also there could actually be problems in Rishi Sunak's own party as well, not least from former Prime Minister Theresa May. She was the brainchild of the Modern Slavery Act, which did a lot of good in terms of stopping people being trafficked. But at the same time, often asylum seekers, people about to be repatriated to other countries, often say, oh, hold on, I was a modern slave. And then a whole process happens where they have to go through that process and it stops them being deported. Now, if Theresa May lays down an amendment to this legislation, it's possible there could be a rebellion of maybe 30 or 40 people, probably some Labour people, probably some Conservatives as well. But that's a big question. So there are a lot of questions in this, not least about the law, not least about the European Convention on Human Rights. Jonathan Gullis was talking a few minutes ago about whether there may be some derogation from that, whether they may be moving away from that and using British law to attempt to supersede that in some way. There are some people who are big fans of the European Convention on Human Rights, people like Robert Buckland, the former Justice Secretary, who may not be too happy about that. So this is a really complex political argument, but the fundamental problem remains in that people are arriving in small boats. They're doing so illegally, unsafely, and in a way that uh, is a risk 
risk to their own lives and pressure, of course, on the British system and the British taxpayer. So this is one of Rishi Sunak's main five pledges. He said a few weeks ago, judge me on this in a year's time. We will see in a year's time with an election just round the corner. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is actually working or not. Right. And what we can say, Peter, thank you very much for that, uh, is that in three years, the numbers coming this, by this particular method uh, have increased by tenfold, from 8,000 to, to 80,000. Absolutely unbelievable. So thanks very much indeed for that. I'm not sure Theresa May's uh, anti-slavery uh, rules actually stopped the traffickers. I think it actually encouraged them even more. But let's go now to Dover, where Oli uh, whitfield Mircic is standing by for us, uh, looking at what's going on down there today. Oliver... Uh, very good morning to you. Welcome. Very good morning to you, Mike. Yes, welcome to Dover. This is the processing centre where for the past few years we've seen those refugees, asylum seekers and migrants being walked up the gangplank behind me before they are processed. Talk TV understands that at least two boats arrived on these shores in the past 24 hours, meaning around 80 or so people had made that perilous journey over from France. So far this year, more than 3,000 people have made that journey. And if those trends were to continue, the Home Office says it would mean that there'd be about 85,000 arrivals this year. That would be more than double the number who arrived yesterday, almost double the number that arrived last year, which was 45,000. And what a contrast it is to 2018, when 300 people made that journey. Emergency meetings were held, ministers' flights and holidays were cancelled as they all scrambled to deal with what they thought at the time was a massive number, that 300 in comparison to the 45 or the potentially 80,000 this year now looks absolutely tiny. It is a hugely divisive topic here, not only in Dover and in Kent in the wider southeast region, because some people say that this has burdened them, that local authorities have had to take in migrants and refugees and house them in hotels, which has put huge strain on local authority ability. Other campaigners, though, say that the government needs to be doing more, that the vast majority of people who come here from certain countries do have their asylum applications approved, which shows that there needs to be a safe route going forward. 
Very good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Oliver Whitfield, Mirchich there, uh, keeping us updated from uh, the processing centre in Dover, which is a pretty busy place as far as we know. Uh, he says the numbers have increased so dramatically that this has become a national emergency. It's as simple as that. It's not just a crisis anymore. 300 people came in 2018. That is literally five years ago, and actually less than five years ago in a way. That number has now increased to 80,000. In 2020, it was 8,000, just over 8,000, uh, nearly 8,500. Eight Ten times that number are going to come this year alone. And it simply is unsustainable. It's ridiculous. It's unfair, as Rishi Sunak would tell you. Uh, and maybe he will be the Prime Minister. Maybe Suella Braverman will be the Home Secretary to make a difference, to stop all this stuff, to stop the nonsense. And we'll be bringing you that just after 12.30 right here on Talk TV. Because, of course, this is the only place to be. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. That laughter you hear in the background, of course, is the one and only Laura Dodsworth, who is here. Um, unbelievably happy looking, uh, but not that happy, actually, because we'll find out why uh, very shortly. But uh, welcome. Nice to see you. Yeah, no, that's funny, because actually I've walked in in a steaming bad mood. Have you? Yeah, I have, about all the news in the world. And yeah. um, there you go, making me laugh, trying to cheer, Sorry. Me, trying to cheer me up. <laughs> and then we were just disagreeing about something, and that really made me laugh. Because, yes. you know, I, I love being right and you being wrong. And so yeah. thanks. You switched my mood around. So well, there you are. You see, there we go. but you only think I'm wrong. Uh, it doesn't actually mean I am wrong, which is two different things, as you yes, know. Yes, darling. But whatever yes, you say. thank you very much. We, we won't argue about that sort of no, uh, nicety of uh, conversation. Instead, let's talk about fairy tale, shall we? Well, I'd like to tell you a story. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes. Could I tell you a then story? Then I'll begin. Then I'll begin. I Do you know, I, I used to listen to Listen with Mother, which I think was the last decent thing they produced on Radio Four, um, or as the home services it was then. Um, and that was always how it started. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. It was a very comforting kind of regular well, Mike, thing to listen to. Once upon a ta- once upon a time, yeah. fairy tales were comfortable. Yeah. Here's a new one for you. Right. Um, you might remember Cinderella. Mm. But a wave of the fairy god person's hand and ta-da! A blended... God person. A, blend, a blended family, beautiful stepsisters, unionised and equally shared light housework duties, a prince wearing a puffy PVC black dress and platform heels, cinders in a suit, mice freed from the indignity of pulling a pumpkin... Are you making this up? And a, and a carbon-neutral hearth in the home. Of course I'm making it up, but the thing is, I made this up um, a couple of weeks ago. I put it in a substack in response to the sensitivity readers mm. who had completely ruined Roald Dahl's works. Yeah. And I actually said to you on air a couple of weeks ago, wait till they find yeah. out about the fairy tales. Well, this is tales. when you nominated Puffin books for Plank of the Week. We did, yeah, mm. I did. I, nom- and I they nominated Puffin for Plank of the Week. And um, there's a story being reported in the Telegraph and the Mail this week. The sensitivity readers have indeed got their hands on the Ladybird fairy tales published <sighs> by Penguin. You, you almost can't make it up. You really these, can't. These morally cretinous, puritanical idiots mm. would pour bleach into your brain if they could. Yeah. They really would. What they don't seem to understand is fairy tales aren't just the here and now. They're not just stories we're telling children now. They're stories that we've told children for hundreds of years. Right. And, you know, when you get a story like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, it often appears in a very similar form in completely different cultures and languages mm. because these stories speak to really deep archetypes 
they can't rewrite them no. even if they want to they want to completely change the way you think so for instance they want more gender neutral language they don't like love at first sight because they think it's wrong that you could fall in love with what's somebody it got to do with them you meet them but it's but a what's it got to do with it's them it's just a story yeah also a lot of these stories have a great deal of cultural significance shall we say because they were part of a civilization uh, and part of a story and by that i mean you know the the history of our people you know and i mean the human race not just any people but everybody you know the reason that they tell stories in aboriginal culture is because it's a part of the education process. The reason they tell stories in the Inuit culture is because it refers to how their life is. You can't go, well, let's not put all the snow and ice in there because, you know, that wouldn't work for people who might be reading this in Wembley. There'll be a climate well, reason why yeah, you can't, Yeah, or course. you can't, yeah, of course. And, I mean, it's all nonsense, isn't it? You know, Cinderella doesn't make anyone who reads it want to go off and find a prince and marry them. Oh, does it, it does. No, it does. It does, of course. It's it's a classic little girl dream. But that's why you well, can... Well, what's re- wrong with that? You, no, I'm not saying nothing's wrong with it. You can rewrite the Flipping Ladybird book. You're not going to change the dream. Right. You're not going to change the archetypal story. And I tell you what, if they think Ladybird's bad, they should get hold of the originals. You know, in an original Sleeping Beauty iteration, she doesn't just get kissed and wake up. No, she wakes up and she's pregnant. Hmm. I mean, a lot of these stories are actually not just... Um, they're not just supposed to be magical with happy endings and they lived... They lived happily forever after. They're also cautionary yeah. tales. So we were laughing about Red Riding Hood before. Right. Of course, one interpretation of that is it's about um, encouraging young women to control their sexual desires, to stay on the on the right path in the forest of the mm. unconscious. You know, what does the wolf represent? He's not a wolf. Um, That's and quite it's, a and deep it's interpretation, same, it, though. It's, it's an interpretation, and you'll find there's lots of interpretations yeah. of fairy tales like that. But, you know, at another level, they just speak to little children of chivalry, mm. of love, of happy endings, of magic, and, and of hope. But also, Little Red Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel basically were written to warn children not to go into the forest or not to go anywhere where they didn't know where they were going. And the reason I mentioned it, and we didn't quite get to this bit, is that I decided to say yesterday that Matt Hancock basically invented a wolf. He invented the wolf in the cottage, in the woods. So if you went there, you might get eaten by the wolf in the woods. And I, I said that and, and immediately realised how brilliant it was. <laughs> and, and thought, wow, that yeah. is... But because that's what he did. He effectively invented a myth, mythical character um, who could hurt you if you didn't do what he told you. That's what he did. I mean, this isn't to negate the fact that there was a virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, and there was a disease, COVID-19, and it killed millions of people, and it was bad. It's not not to refute that. But, of course, we know risks were exaggerated, and we know it from these leaked WhatsApp files. You know, they talk about the the risk according to age and demographic. That was known as early as February 2020, but they chose to mislead the public Mm. on it. You know, Adam Curtis in The Power of Nightmares talks about... The fact that politicians will end up in creating phantoms, you know, enemy phantoms. This isn't something new to politics, but of course it's something normally that is turned upon another country. It's not something a government normally turns upon its own people simply to make them follow rules. It's decided it's set upon. I mean, these, these WhatsApp... It's what happened are, in Bosnia. Are, they're a horror story. Yeah. I mean, this is not a fairy tale because, unfortunately, it's real. We've lived it for the last few years, and it's a horror story. I tell you what, Mike, I think it is so horrific yeah. that people will not let themselves believe it. No. I mean, the reaction in the media at the moment, not here at Talk TV, yeah. obviously, but in a lot of places, a lot of outlets, is 
exhibiting all the hallmarks of defence mechanisms that set in when people have cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So, for instance, some people have totally denied that mm. these WhatsApp messages are real. Right. They've denied the authenticity, yeah. or they said, yeah, but you, you know, you're showing them out of context. Well, they're not, in the, part, they're not very, in the right order. At the very, yeah, at the very beginning, that was Matt Hancock's kind of briefing, wasn't it, that he wasn't even sure if some of them had been altered. And he suddenly ran away from that. He said it once only and then didn't say it again, suggesting mm -hmm. that he probably didn't want to have that. As they a, would as all a, say it if, if that was the case. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we should... I think, we, I think we can rely on the fact that the Telegraph is presenting these in a fair way in the public interest. Because yeah. after all, that would be their only legal defence mm. if it comes to it. Yeah. Um, so people have denied the authenticity. They're trying to minimise the impact by saying that certain data is cherry-picked. Mm. Or they go into another strategy, which is projection. They've made the scoop getter, Isabel Oakeshott, the baddie. Mm. They're making the story about her. Oh, but she signed an NDA. Mm. Yeah, yeah, OK, she signed an NDA, but there's a public interest argument. Now, what about the contents? Yeah. And you see people like Nick Robinson, Kathy Newman, not wanting to get into the contents. Mm. And these are stark revelations. They're painful. They're painful revelations for the whole country. The fact that we were misled. Yeah. The fact that senior civil servants and politicians basically laughed at our expense. They well, treated that, us I think, like has children. Really shocked fairy people. tales. That's really shocked people. I think that, that, that I said this morning that it's revealed to me something that we probably already knew that we're dealing with sort of shop window politics here. We're dealing with a government that cares more about what we think they're doing than what they're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really callous self-serving mm. in these messages. I was really upset when I read last night's episode. I mean, people have said to me this week, oh, are you feeling vindicated? I'm not. I'm actually, I'm choking on you reading every day. You don't want to be day. proved right on they're, things like this, do you? They're really upsetting because yeah. the callous way they talk about people is awful. So the latest thing that came out last night, there's a list of MPs who they were trying to persuade to vote with the yes. government and not against on renewing restrictions. And what they have is a list of MPs, which is, it, it reads like a hit list, mm. Like, how are we going to persuade well, them to vote with the government? They? They, they did. Let's let's not let's bookmark that one because yeah. there's another hit list they yeah. had. But they're trying to persuade these MPs, and then you read this truly, morally bankrupt, callous, disgusting conversation that Matt Hancock has, where he where he says, you know, he agrees to the idea of using a disabled mm. health hub in one constituency as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Like, if you vote our way, you'll get your health hub for disabled people. Yeah. And if you don't vote our way, you won't. Right. Can you imagine anything more revolting? I mean, every day I'm thinking, how much worse can it get? Yeah. And it gets worse. I think the trouble is, this is how it's been for a while, um, maybe for much longer than we know, but you've never actually seen it written down. You know, we all know, for example, in Labour constituencies back in the day, um, Grangemouth, for example, uh, in Scotland, was a place which was a Labour constituency for years and years and years and years. It happens to have ruined the beautiful banks of the River Forth, but it's a massive petrochemical plant that could have gone anywhere in the UK that had access to deep water. They gave it to Grangemouth because the Labour government that was in charge was rewarding the Labour MP in that constituency with money. Simple. But when you see it written down in a WhatsApp message, it looks horrendous. And it is yeah, horrendous. It is horrendous. And so we're seeing all of these defence mechanisms kick in as people try to downplay mm. the importance and the true meaning of them. I mean, another way we're seeing it downplayed is certain people who I will just describe generically as media elites. So, yes. Well, even if they did try to frighten us, it was for our own good, the noble lie argument. That's because they went can, along with it. They right? went along with it. And they, they perhaps what this reflects is their own journalistic shortcomings yeah. by not questioning it properly at the time. Because like I said, the data was there February 20th. Well, clever people don't like to risk be wasn't clever people equally. don't like to be proven to have not been quite so clever. There is that. And there's another thing, because they think that it's 
they don't want us to question what's behind the lies. They'll say, well, you know, some people are going to run with this and develop a conspiracy theory behind it. So you should deny people the truth in case they infer a hypothesis that you don't agree Mm. with. Do you know what? The best way to avoid conspiracy theory thinking um, or wild hypotheses is you just give them the truth as you have it. It's that simple. It really is that that simple. simple, But they don't like it. No, because the truth for many people now is that they did massively get it wrong. They should have done their jobs better. And I'm not just talking about media, I'm talking about politicians as well, people on the opposite side of the uh, of the divide in Parliament. You know, they all just went along with everything that was going on. And, you know, even the people who say now, oh, you know, I mean, Andrew Neil's one of them who's coming out now and making out like he was anti-lockdown. I don't remember mm. that. Well, I tell you what I do remember. I remember his mail op-ed where he said it's time to punish Britain's five million... Refusenics, mm. vaccine refusenics. Yeah. He basically wanted to punish the unvaccinated for um, for not going along with what they were told. Yeah. I mean, it, we really swerved a truly dreadful yeah. time when people who were choosing not to be vaccinated for a multitude of reasons they shouldn't need to justify, mm. he wanted them punished mm. and locked out of society. I know. It's quite frightening. And when you see things like the conversations that they had that they didn't enact, for example, killing all cats, mm-hmm. you just go, What? We talked about this. Yeah. In, in the pandemic. A sex ban? Oh, the sex ban. The sex funny. ban. But on the pets, you know, we talked about this um, like Except really for Neil Ferguson and Matt Hancock, apparently, the sex ban. Because, yeah, exactly. Because, do you, you know, in, in World War II, hundreds of thousands of dogs mm. were killed. And I said to you, I, I, we'll have it on air somewhere. I said to no, you, I they'll, they'll come for the pets. I remember. Because that's what happens in times of well, plague. They, they go of, for the animals. They killed a lot of mink in Denmark, didn't they? Because they thought they were spreading it. Yeah, it's a hallmark of plague right. management. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily work, but it's like a kind of a superstitious thing that people do. And talking about superstition, yeah. if you think back to the beginning of the lockdown, think about think about the kind of rituals, and I'm, I'm calling them rituals semi-seriously, yeah. that were enacted. People tuned in every day for the daily deaths. It became this big, sombre daily thing that we all joined in and did together, almost like a collective act of anti-worship you know there was the uh, the weekly pot banging yeah. for the nhs you know everybody was in it together they were wearing their masks to look together you know masks looked like the vestiture mm. of the faithful all of these things really cemented the handmaid's people. tale comes to mind doesn't it definitely that kind of thing you know lots of religions actually have items that they wear on the face or the head it's yeah and we know from the cochrane review the mask never served any really decent no. purpose to prevent infection but they were all because but all if symbols. you think but as we thought about it and talked about it at the time it never could have how would it wearing some wet horrible you know stinking piece of cloth around your face which some people did religiously how in hell is that going to do you any good? But there were so many of these rituals, you know, sanitising your hands when you went in somewhere, standing on dots. There were lots of acts of ritualised subservience to a belief system. Mm. And I think that, well, also there was a study that showed just the act of lockdown itself made people believe that the situation must be really yeah. severe. Otherwise, the government wouldn't have done it. Right. So all of these different things have got people into a state where it's just almost like Stockholm Syndrome. And that's where there's such bad mm. cognitive dissonance now. It's left me feeling a bit depressed. I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm having some kind of existential crisis about human psychology. And I thought things would get better through yeah. the pandemic. For me, they're getting worse because I'm like, how do we ever reconcile people and have healing between people that think differently? Because no one's kind of meeting in the middle now. Mm. But, you know, but I think, you see, people have stopped doing that. People have lost all reason. And lost it during the Brexit uh, days and the Brexit weeks and the Brexit years, if you like, because people became obsessed with one thought. 
And I think that's not good for the human condition. I think people were incapable of seeing anything other than in black and white terms and that they couldn't yeah. either see, couldn't see any grey areas anymore. You either wanted to leave the European Union or you didn't. And therefore, that defines everything. And now, that's what everything is defined by. Yeah, what group very... are you in? Are you over there or are you over here? There's nobody in the middle. Things not allowed very, to be the middle. Very politically myopic, very yeah. divided. And I think it's a really bad sign. I mean, I fear that the worst is still to come for us. But I just wanted to draw a little comparison. This might be a bit inflammatory for some people. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that the whole lockdown, mask, etc. thing was like a cult. But it had cult-like aspects. Oh, definitely. Now, when cults' prophecies fail, because this happens, you know, the apocalypse doesn't come or the UFO fails to land yeah. and rescue you or the saviour doesn't turn up in your pool somewhere in a valley in the United States. Mm. You know, whatever, whatever prophecy fails to materialise, you'd think at that point people go, oh, OK, you know what, maybe this cult's not actually right. Mm. I think I'm going to pack my bags and leave. They don't do that. That's no. not what happened. There's a whole book about this called When Prophecies Fail by um, Professor Festinger about this strange small UFO cult that was in Chicago. Mm. And the, the UFO didn't come for them. And you, they didn't go, oh, you know what, maybe there isn't something in this. They stayed. They stayed for another date that the cult right. leader told them the UFO would come. And they stayed again. And, and what happens is people double down in their beliefs. People wake up from this kind of madness one at a time yeah. they don't wake up on mass so i think that although the lockdown files are another big key turn in this door that's mm. imprisoned our mentality the door's not open yet yeah. i think there's a long way to go well when boris johnson lifted all the restrictions um overnight basically because mm. suddenly his job was in, under threat it looked so ridiculous you kind of went oh so now because you might lose your job everything all bets are off so you don't have to worry about travel restrictions there's no more requirements for vaccinations it's all gone overnight there were still people going this is absolute madness this is reckless people in the media still saying you know you mustn't get rid of all these restrictions you know covid is still around you know and those voices have got smaller over time but they haven't gone completely because no. they're just waiting for another opportunity because they want they will be waiting rather like i nominated ramona's um, in Plank of the Week the other week because as things were starting to look a bit shaky over Northern Ireland, they all came back out of the forest and were like, see, see, told you, told you, now we should rejoin, now we should rejoin, let's get back in because now it's all gone wrong. And they'll do it again with another, you know, pandemic if it turns up. They'll go, see, we were right. Well, I think that's a real fear. There's a fear that the same thing would happen again. I mean, people have got not quieter on masks because the Cochrane Review is the gold standard nail in the coffin. Yeah. You know, you can't claim masks work no. now. You can't. You can claim some better research you still can, needs to be done. If you, if but you, you can't, can say you can't really claim I wear work. one because it protects me from the germs around me. Well, you can say that if you like. You can yeah. say any number of things. But, you, but there, are, there are fewer scientists calling for masks now in response to yeah. rising cases or whatever. It's going to take it's going to take longer for people to acknowledge the truth that lockdowns weren't the right measure, but more importantly that that fear wasn't the right mm. tool to use. I'm amazed by how many people believe in this idea of the noble lie that it was okay to scare people if it was for their own good. Yes. And those people need to be really careful because do you want to be governed like mm. that on a yearly basis? Yeah. Is that what you want for people to be terrified? If you scare people, it affects their physical health as well as their mental right. health. This is not a good thing to keep doing. And to worse people. than that, scare them and then poll them on how scared are you. Right? <laughs> I know. It was like but a I remember one of the things that used to drive me mad whenever I watched any sort of press conference or interview or anything basically on TV or radio, apart from on talk TV and talk radio as it was, the question was always, how worried should we be about this? Always. And what sort of a question is that? Why should I be worried about anything? 
Mm. You know, if you want to worry about things, that's up to you. But it's not a news interview question, is it? You know, how worried should I be about you walking out of here and, you know, getting hit by a bus? Should I be worried about that? Well, of course I should. Well, you know, Mike, you brought up the sex thing in the in the um, WhatsApp files, mm. and this is another one. This was another question: When will be allowed? When will we be allowed to hug? Right. Can people have sex? I mean, what mental questions to be asking your government? These are not cues yeah. that you need from your government. These are deeply personal, individual, yeah. human questions. That it's up to me if I hug somebody or have sex yeah. with them. I mean, crikey! If I live in a government where, if I live in a country where the government tells cool me whether government. I can hug, yeah. hug or have sex. Yeah. I'm going to have to emigrate. You there know, was that was, that was a remember. very ignominious yeah. period of history. I remember one of the great questions from Beth Rigby um, when they were explaining about something to do with sunbathing. And they were some, I said, from Monday, because it was always, you know, like said Friday, but from Monday, you'll be able to go out and sunbathe. And she said, without a shadow of a joke, could I possibly go out and sunbathe on Sunday, a day before? And you're kind of going, sorry, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? It's funny, isn't it? Because um, Professor Pantsdown, I mean, sorry, Ferguson, oh, yeah. didn't didn't wait for permission to go across London to have sex with his lover, did he? He didn't. And On he was, several he occasions. He was right at the heart of all of the modelling and the data. He didn't even care. That he she felt was, safe. He didn't even care that she was married. Um, Matt Hancock wasn't, you know, he wasn't too worried about the terrible danger to his household or his girlfriend's household. How about how about what he said? Um, about uh, after he was caught out and on his WhatsApp messages to his to his advisors, well, how do we deal with this? What do I say? How, what, can we say we made a mature decision, right, uh, to at uh, that point realise that we were in a safe place and that we could do this? Yeah. Was that was that a defence, do you think, for all the people who would have preferred to go to a magistrate course to argue their PCN for sitting on park benches yeah. or going to visit well, neighbours? Somebody could, pointed could they out, have I think made it was, a mature yeah. decision? Well, I think it was James Hill this morning who said uh, to Julia that, there are still people going through the courts now yeah. who were fined, right? Mm. Surely they should all be exonerated. The, the government should say, you know, if you've got a fine, just tear it up because that's not required. The, my, I can't let you go, though, without the scaring the pants off you. Quote, oh, no. Right? Because that's what oh. he said. I'm not trying to scare the pants off I thought you were going to try. I was like, please, I no, can't he said, no Matt Hancock yeah. said, we need to scare the pants off people. And he obviously only did that once. <laughs> he did he did with and and uh, but you know in all seriousness in all seriousness if there are any naysayers still going oh what was that laura dodsworth talking about in her book a state of fear we've had matt hancock put it in black and white now that they wanted to scare people mm. simon ruder who was one of the founders of the nudge unit publishing a, a mayor culprit and unheard about the use of fear he said it was unacceptable how much fear was conveyed upon the public rishi sunak talked about it in the spectator if people still don't think there was a campaign of fear to make them follow the rules, they never will. No, no, they're a lost cause, I'm afraid. But uh, thank you very much indeed. State thank of Fear is still available, of course, uh, at all reasonable book outlets. It's just sold out on Amazon. Mm. Can you not get like one of those current. It'll stamps? It'll be back soon. You know how you do those kind of stamps on a, on a, on a paperback edition or something, like confirmed okay. or something like that, you know, just to, <laughs> just to ram it home. It was all confirmed at the time. My book went through two fact checkers. Uh, there was nothing in there that wasn't true. There's a couple of hypotheses, but where they're hypotheses, their theories, I laid them out such. There was nothing there that wasn't true. Mm. It stood the test of time. Indeed it has. Well, we look forward to seeing 
you next week. Who knows what we'll know by then. Uh, Laura Dodsworth will be back. Uh, I'll be back well, as well. We're going to take some calls. We should do that. Also, I'm going to talk about some new government policy on balloons. You won't believe this one. This is Talk TV. frost to begin the day on Wednesday. Still some snow showers scattered around northern and eastern coastal areas of Scotland, but a lot of dry weather, I think, on Wednesday with sunshine. Further south, still tricky because we'll have this zone of slightly wetter weather in the southwest, potentially rain near the south coast, but snow inland and another cold day. Times Business sponsors Talk TV Weather. Unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On DAB+, on the app, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on, lots to do between now and midday, uh, and rather one o'clock I should say, it's already midday. Uh, we've leaked into the afternoon and coming up in about half an hour's time we think Suella Braverman will be getting up in the House of Commons, the Home Secretary, uh, to outline precisely what it is that she and Rishi Sunak are going to introduce by way of new laws to stop people from coming to this country illegally, to stop the small boats, to stop the illegal migrants, to stop uh, the hundreds of thousands of people who will come unless something is done because it looks as though 80,000 are going to come this year uh, which is a tenfold increase in literally just three years ago which is an extraordinary state of affairs 0344 499 1000 uh, and a message here from Arthur who says do the people who are pushing for no more cars not realise that it's the taxpayer who will have to cover the loss in revenue from the reduction of car usage and its associate industries absolutely right lots and lots of you getting in touch about many things and we will reach all of you if we can if we can't get to you just remember you can always call up tomorrow and you can always get on it's just a very busy show these days it's quite difficult to get on but we're going to talk now though to Norman Brennan a former police officer a man who constantly finds himself at the end of his tether with all manner of things and I don't blame him for it uh, we had a conversation the other day about how somebody needs to do something in this country to start up some kind of political movement to just improve the general lot of the ordinary people of this country because you know we are bombarded every single day by terrible stories uh, of the police not doing their jobs properly of horrible murders horrible assaults horrible terror attacks you know an nhs which is barely functioning uh, you've got a border force which can't stop hundreds of thousands of people coming to this country you know seeming capable of knowing what to do about it you know the list just goes on and on and on only this week you know, we've had the charles bronson parole hearing that's going to resume tomorrow he's a man who served nearly 50 years in prison and they're still thinking about letting him out which seems incredible to me uh, you've got pc thomas andrews metropolitan police officer jailed just today for assaulting a woman during an off-duty incident police under fire in wales for their response to missing teenagers who were involved in a car crash and weren't found for a long time wayne cousins sentenced yesterday and it sounds like a litany uh, of terrible things many of them to do with the police and how the police aren't functioning properly norman though i think is going to talk to me today about why of course he doesn't forgive and doesn't in any way um, ameliorate what has happened in these individual cases but he does want to make the point that the police are under incredible pressure and under incredible strain norman a very good afternoon to you yeah, good afternoon mike norman listen it's going to be a difficult opinion to share but i know that you do it heartfelt and from the from the, the place where you come from which is a very different world and a very different policing world 
Tell us a bit about your reaction to to things like Wayne Cousins and, and, and how it was possible, for example, for his number plates to have been given to the police and for nothing to have been done about that. Well, first of all, let me just clear up what you've just said there, is that uh, I'm ashamed to say, as a leading independent police spokesman, that the police service is imploding. It's imploding from top downwards. Um, I've never seen it this bad. Um, I'm not a fair-weather friend to policing. I'm honest. There's some incompetence. There's some appalling criminal behaviour by some of today's police officers that are condemned by us all. And, and yeah, we can condemn it all we like, but what the public wants to see is to see some sort of change. They must be given that time, certainly the commissioner and chief constables. So I share your concerns and that of the public. Right, in relation to Wayne Cousins, in my era, bit of a dinosaur, yes, we took every single crime report every day and every crime report was allocated to an officer. If some officer had too many on their plate, we'd give it to somebody that had less. We certainly made sure that we contacted the victim immediately and we would go and get a statement and any CCTV or any other supporting evidence to help the victim. Mm. Let's go on 10, 20 years. 12 years ago, Theresa May cut the police service by 12,000 officers. These were frontline officers and also tens of thousands of backroom staff. That meant that Britain had a police service that had less officers doing more and with almost no backup. So that crime report that a member of the public would have made, they now will be put into an allocation system to an officer that might have 10, 20, possibly 30 crimes, separate crimes to investigate. That officer would be doing early, late nights. They would be going from one emergency call to another. They'll have rest days. They'll have annual leave days. They'll have training days, sick days, and also be caught to road demonstrations, etc., etc. The point I'm making is when you've got 20 or 30 separate complaints, and many will need some serious investigation, mm. in-depth investigation, crimes such as the ones of indecent exposure instead of being dealt with within that day or within a couple of days, could not be looked into possibly for a week, two weeks or a month. So it doesn't matter whether Wayne Cousins had committed a burglary or many other serious offences, bar murder, a shooting or a stabbing, he possibly and probably would not have been prevented from committing the appalling murder of Sarah Everard. No. That's the reality of today's policing. Yeah. And so, I mean, in terms of what we know about the way the police has been run, we know that, you know, there's been an awful lot of talk of, um, you know, following up on things like non-crime, hate crime incidents and that kind of business. And police have clearly been able to spend a lot of time on some things which they must have been directed to do. I, the people I feel sorry for are the everyday police officers who are constantly being told, do this, do that. Uh, I'm told by many of them that an awful lot of their work now revolves around mental health problems and having to go and get people who are, you know, basically breaking down uh, in a house or, or having some kind of incident in a street. But these are people who are mentally unwell and the police are having to mop all that up. I don't know who else should be doing it, by the way. Um, but has the nature of the job changed because of the way the people who manage it are managing it? You make a very good point. Sometimes there are as many police cars at a hospital on prisoner watch or with someone that's been badly beaten than there are ambulances. Often, Mike, there will be 
a handful of officers on duty covering sometimes several hundred square miles. If you arrest someone that perhaps is violent, suppose they've come out of a pub at lunchtime, mm. they're fighting everybody, that will need a minimum of two police officers. If you're two of six or seven officers covering hundreds of miles, you're going to be off the streets for the entire shift dealing mm. with that one suspect. Two or three other suspects are arrested as well because there's lots of crime being committed. Often enough, there is no one police in the streets. There is no one to deal with what the public want, and that's a police officer to attend. The police can't do right for wrong. They've become the Aunt Sally's of society. And the sad reality is that many people see the police as being corrupt, racist, angry, not fit for the job. There are some that fit in that category. The majority don't. But the majority, every time they see all this um, hate and incitement of hatred, often from the mainstream media who get on people that slate the police service day in and day out. You go home and you say, do you know what? I joined the police service to protect society, to turn up, assist victims, lock up the bad guys and do my job. I don't think I can do it anymore. And not only that, I get little thanks. I get very little pay. And all I get is abuse. And last year, 37,000 police officers were assaulted some of them very seriously. The sentences was derisory. So if you can't protect the protectors of society, Mike, how the hell are the protectors of society going to be able to do their job with some sort of competence? And 20% of police are looking at leaving Mm. in the next two years. What does that tell you? Well, no, I listen, I I get all of that and I take all of those points on board and I think you're right. However, um, the sense that a lot of people have is that if there are three people up in court in any given week, and this is what Mark Rowley said, who's now head of the Metropolitan Police, who are police officers on criminal charges of one kind or another, that cannot be sustainable. Um, if you've got uh, a culture where people who are knownly known for certain things, like, for example, Bastard Dave, uh, 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 a rapist police officer, uh, and the murderer, uh, Wayne Cousins, who was known as the rapist, I mean, there's clearly a culture in some parts of the police where these guys are protected, and that can't be right. I wouldn't go and say protected, but there seemed to be lack of supervision, Mike. Mm. Sergeants and inspectors were, used to be hugely respected. They're now seen as chums. You've got middle rankers that they are more obsessed with promotion than ensuring the public and victims are getting the service that they get. And more importantly, supervising frontline officers. Because we lost 12,000 officers, the government and policing have been obsessed we're trying to recruit as soon as possible. And sadly, we are getting a number of officers being recruited that are not up to the job. Mm. We used to have two references, and we used to have a senior officer go out and interview our references. We used to go to training school for 16 weeks, where some of those that might have slipped through the net were actually rooted out. And many of us had names, and some of us had awful names in the police. But being called a certain name, Mike, is not evidence. And when you say there's cover-up, or alleged cover-up, it's not that there is a cover-up. Most police officers don't interact with their colleagues. They're single crewed. They come in, they pick the car keys up, they're in their vehicle, often on their own, and then the next thing they're doing is they're booking off duty. So a point of covering up, but what that does allow, when there's so few officers and so little supervision, it allows certain officers to go rogue. And those rogue officers are condemned 
by you, me, and every single Serbian police officer. Yeah. And I'll tell you this now, is that it's the good cops that arrest the bad cops. And sadly, Mike, nowadays, there's too many bad cops being no, arrested. No, listen, I, I get all of that. But, but let's not forget that certainly in Cousin's case, and I know it's a very rare case, and so I don't want to single it out and make out that there's a lot of these kind of people... But, you know, he was in WhatsApp groups with other people, some of whom have now been suspended uh, or fired. You know, he did have a nickname. And you don't get that unless people know what you're up to. And it seems to me, uh, I've certainly worked, as you have, I'm sure, in different crews, in different situations, in newspapers, in, uh, in now broadcasting. You know, if you work with people, you know what they're like, especially if people are like Wayne Cousins. They usually don't make any secret of it. And that's the problem. There are some cops that are crap at the job. I've worked with some, mm. and I was given a probationer that no other officer would work with. I was a senior PC. In the end, he, he was kicked out. Mm. We do our best to ensure that we get the best on the streets. Some join, they're not really up to the scratch, but can turn around. Others can't be turned around. I mean, I have never seen the police service in such disarray. I cannot sit here and defend the indefensible. What Wayne Cousin done was appalling. But I think the police service, now that they've had a massive wake-up call from Chief Constable downwards, must ensure that the public reassurance and the public support is paramount. It's going to take years, I'm yeah. afraid, to turn around. But every time someone's nicked and prosecuted, Mike, we can't beat the rest of the police service with the same baseball bat, because then you're not going to have a police mm. service. Everyone's going to bugger off and become a train driver, get a job uh, in the high street, set up their own business. And who's going to police the streets then? We've got to have a bit of calm now and we've got to give the police service a chance to turn things around. And I am ashamed at what today's British police service is, is, has become. But I'm not a fair weather friend. I was a police officer for 31 years, risked my life with many other officers. We loved the job. We gave this public and victims a very good service. And I'm sorry and ashamed that we can't do that today. I've been failed as a victim of crime, Mike, many times recently. And I know how the public feel. And I share I share their disgust at the officers that commit serious crime. And I, almost, I also share that when you phone up the police and they don't attend, you then think, well, why bother in future? Mm. And if we don't bother to support the police and the police don't get the information of who's committing crime, then what we've got is anarchy on the streets. I don't want to see that. And I'm sure you don't no. and anybody watching this programme doesn't. Exactly right. Norman, very heartfelt, as I said. Thank you so much for talking to us. Norman Brennan, former police officer, says the police have now in this country never been at a lower ebb, have never been in a worse state. Something's got to be done. Surely, what can it be? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're going to hear from Suella Bravo and we go back uh, to Dover to get the latest from the uh, processing centre. Peter Cardwell's live for us in Westminster. Jeremy Carl's going to be telling us what's coming up on his show at 7 o'clock. Don't forget to subscribe to the Independent Republican Mike Graham podcast so you never miss a moment from the show. Subscribe and download it now from wherever you get your podcasts. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.